relatively privileged person, some friend or some fortuitous stroke of providence has led you to NBC or else a Netflix queue where you started watching Parks and Recreation. And on this show, you will have come into acquaintanceship with a man who has a hardy mustache. I'm talking hardy mustache. And a constitution to match it and and anti-government convictions that would line up perfectly with very many of our gun-toting friends and neighbors in this congregation and around us. He hates the government for which he works. But he loves steak and single malt whiskey and war movies and bacon. Thank you for that segue, Adam, because there is a scene. This is even unprompted. Can you tell the Holy Spirit's in this place? Because there is a scene where Ron Swanson, his name is, performs one of his many, as some people have called it, swanologues. He has these great one-liners, and I've come to love him, so they're even more precious to me than they will be to you as I share this, but nonetheless. He's sitting in a restaurant, his favorite restaurant, I think, in Indianapolis, Indiana. And the waiter named John brings him his meal and says this to him. Here you go, sir. One rare porterhouse, comma, a sirloin, comma, and a rasher of bacon. That's all he brought him. Various meats. Ron Swanson beholding the smorgasbord of formerly live animals says to him, It's the Lord's work you're doing, John. (laughs) It's the Lord's work you're doing, John. Now, please, four more glasses of Laguvulin in liquid form, please. That's scotch, single malt whiskey. The waiter says, it's not really necessary to specify in liquid form. And he says, you'd be surprised. (laughs) Ron Swanson had eyes to be impressed with the remarkable bounty of God to him in a steakhouse with bacon and porterhouse steak and sirloin steak. He had trained eyes, you see, to marvel at something that was filling him with wonder that was making his taste buds giddy and his insides filled with joy. Well, it seems to me that Ron Swanson is a a nice little introduction to the kind of thing that needs to happen to us in the middle of life where we are trying to frame our lives according to ultimate reality, which is that we belong not to ourselves, but to Jesus Christ. That we've been invaded by him, that our hope is in him, that he is one day going to make all things new. But right now, we live in a time where we get frequently dismayed where we think, does it really matter to keep believing these things? We get rather disgusted with ourselves. There are people all around us who don't believe this, making us say, have we lost our minds? No one intelligent seems to be believing this stuff. What's wrong with us? And so the the apostle is in a way here reminding these Thessalonians, these Thessalonians, of the marvel that is to come. And in the midst of that, we see some matters worth marveling over in our own lives. Because like Ron Swanson with his porterhouse snake and his rasher, not snake, not a snake. You don't eat a porterhouse snake. You run over it with a lawnmower, ask Marilyn Griffith. I don't even know what a porterhouse snake is. It's not a real thing. 
a porterhouse steak. But just like Ron Swanson can notice the very good hand of God in these things, there's a way of learning to marvel as God's people in a way that we will be doing forever and ever. And the apostle gives us some instruction in that by way of example and by way of teaching as we look at this first chapter in 1 Thessalonians. And he starts with this. He marvels at growing faith and increasing love in the lives of God's people. He marvels at increasing faith and growing love. Growing faith and increasing love among God's people. It's something for us to marvel at among each other and in your own self. Listen to this. We ought always thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so. It's fitting. It's appropriate. It's what we are obligated to do, what we can't help ourselves to do, to thank God for you because the faith that you have, it's been hit with miracle growth. Your capacity for trust, for adhering to the promises of God, has become like super glue, and you are fastened onto God's promises, and you are hanging on even when it's hard. And I see that capacity growing. I see your preparedness to act as if Jesus really is the king, as if your life is beholden to him. I see that capacity to act as if it's true, ever increasing and growing all the time. And I can't help but thank God for it. And the love that every one of you has is continuing to increase, he says. And I can't help but thank God for that. See, Paul is marveling. He thinks, this is a wonder. Formerly self-absorbed people in the middle of a situation where they are being called all kinds of names, where they are being ridiculed, where they are getting a lot of black eyes, are growing in their capacity to trust God and to walk as if it's true and to love each other. It makes them say, what a wonder this is. It makes me think, how does the apostle know that they're growing in faith and love? Well, in the first book of the Thessalonian correspondence, he said that he sent Timothy to them because he's worried about their faith. He was worried that they would be unsettled by trial, so he sent Timothy to them to find out about their faith because he was afraid that the tempter may have come in and tempted them and their efforts may have been useless. But he says, here's the one thing, here's a way I could know that your love was growing is that when I sent Timothy, he said, you guys always have fond memories of us and you're eager to see us just like we're eager to see you. Think of this for a minute. The apostle knew that love was growing in this church that God had breathed into existence because the people were excited to see each other. They missed each other. They, they felt affection for each other. When they were with each other, they thought it was fantastic. Do you think of that as being a theological truth? Like, Christians ought to be known for how well they like other people. How gracious and kind. How, how generously spirited they are and open-handed and hearted. That's why we do this meet and greet that some of you hate and hate me for. So that we can share and grow in this, in this warmth of affection that God means for us. Paul in one place says, I long for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. Jesus has art and affection for his people. And when he takes residence in you, he starts to put that affection in you. You find yourself starting to, to like other people, not just your own family. Like other people maybe that no one else likes. And that is a marvel. When that happens, it's a wonder. Obviously, he's seen that. And the other thing that happens, it must be the case if he can tell that their love is growing more and more, 
it must be the case that Paul, for whom love was a very practical thing, not, a, not, not an ethereal thing, not like he had some inner magnetic resonance imaging technology where he could look inside and see people's love tank and see if they were you know, filled to the brim or if they were running on empty in their little, you need gas, love gas, check engine li- or light was on. He couldn't just look in them and know if they had love. He was obviously seeing that there were very practical concerns given for each other in the community. The apostles made clear the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. The apostle, if you've ever never even read the Bible, you've been to a wedding somewhere before where someone read 1 Corinthians 13 that love is it's all these practical things. It's, it's viewable. It puts on work boots in the morning. It wears work clothes. It wears many hats, but it's It's patient and kind. It's not self-seeking. It's not rude. It's not easily angered. All those things. It rejoices in the truth. It doesn't delight in evil. It protects and trusts and hopes. And and it hangs on and it puts up with. And so obviously he's seen these things coming. Because what happens if you look at your own life? The people that you natively, that you indigenously love the best and the easiest are probably your own children. Right? If some of you have children, you know this. If you have been a children, you know this from your parents in the opposite direction. But one of these things that happens to a parent is you find yourself in this position of being someone who has been held hostage in a good way, a pleasant captivity of the concerns of someone else becoming way infinitely more important than your own. You get to a state of being where the the well-being of this other person is so vastly more important than your own well-being that you're not even thinking about yours all the time. You can't be okay if they're not okay. If they are excited, if they have an accomplishment, if they have something really fantastic happen to them, you are elated. If they are disgusted, if they are forlorn, if they are crushed, if they feel rejected, somehow or another you feel all of those things almost by osmosis. No one has to say, here's what you're supposed to do to love your children. Your concern for them just moves you out to do all manner of practical things. You're thinking about them. What do they need? What would help them? What would comfort them? And then you do it. Not perfectly. Some of you are way better at it than others. It's a joke. But your concern drives you. And see, the apostle would say, here's how you know. Here's something worth marveling at. When you find yourself somebody who is looking out in the world and you just find concerns in you for others that make you forget about yourself. Or you might be aware of your own concerns, but they just make you put your concerns second. Your schedule, your money, your time, what you feel about it doesn't really matter because you're just eaten up with the concern of another. That's what growing love is. That's what the apostle would say. This is an evidence that God has invaded a community and taken root of them in something that is a a marvel to behold. Something worth aspiring to even. Just a growing practical concern for the needs, the schedules, the emotions, the well-being of the people around us at work, at school, in our neighborhood. Paul says this is a marvel at growing faith and increasing love. And it gives, it gives you something to aspire to, I think. You know, earlier Paul said, I pray that Jesus will make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. You can make it your prayer. You want to you transform 
your daily living? What if you walked into the job site having prayed, Lord, as I drive these nails today, as I frame this house, as I deal with this very finicky customer, give me love for them. Give me sympathies for their concerns. Let me care about the kind of product that I'm creating, the kind of service that I'm offering, because somebody that you love will be on the receiving end of it. Let me be concerned about them. If you sell things, Lord, let me not just be concerned about my commission. Let me be concerned about the well-being of those to whom I sell. If you teach, oh, Lord, give me an increasing affection and ardent aspiration for my students that drives me to work hard for them, to learn so that I can teach, to sympathize, to empathize. One of the joys of domestic life is getting to do the same thing over and over again, ad nauseum, as if it will never stop, isn't it? Isn't it fun? Like, every day, there are dishes to be done. Kathy's like, what do you know about it? (laughs) Well, I've seen it happen, you see. There's wash to be done. There's dishes to be done. There's beds to be made. There's tidying to be done. And the extravagant joy of that, isn't it? As you wash the dish, you get everything clean, and then the entropic principle happens. A hurricane happens in your house. And instantly, all the stuff you just gave yourself to, it's all undone. Things fall apart. You have to do it again. But if you have this sense in you, oh Lord, help me to wash these dishes in love for the people who will eat off of them, who will be nourished from them. Help me to wash and fold these clothes for the one millionth time in love for the people who will wear them, who will go out into the world as representatives of you. Oh, see, the the love of God, the affection of Christ, the Concern for others invests all the tedium of your life with great importance. Important things and seemingly unimportant things can all be done with a great deal of love. And this is an aspiration to marvel at. Growing faith and increasing love. The Apostle Paul also says, You marvel at your endurance in the faith as evidence that you belong to God. He says, uh, What book are we in? Okay, he says, All this... He says, we boast about your perseverance in your faith and all the persecutions and trials you're doing. And he says, all of this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Here's a neat thing. You know, in some places, the apostle says things like, he who calls you is faithful and he will do it. God, who began a good work in you, will carry it on to completion. He says, we're confident of this until the day of Christ Jesus, that you'll be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. The apostle is confident when God takes up residence in you that he is going to finish what he started. And so in his mind, when there are churches who are living in a kind of situation where all the people around them are saying, you guys are fools or you guys are seditious. You don't love Rome or America. You're part of the problem. You're not worshiping the local deities and now harm is going to befall us. You guys are cannibals eating bodies and blood. You guys are atheists. You don't worship Caesar. 
They're getting ridiculed. They're getting called to be part of the problem. You're getting told they're on the wrong side of history. Or wait, that's us. And yet, they keep growing in faith. They keep growing in love. They keep coming back to God. And Paul says, this is evidence that God's judgment is right. Because when he justified you, when he said, you know what? You are mine. And on the day of reckoning, on the day of judgment... It'll all come out in the wash. We'll find out who was right and who was wrong. We'll find out who God's people were and who they weren't and whether this was all true about God or not. And of course the apostle thinks that's why you need to frame your life according to this amazing reality coming and that all the people who keep on trusting Christ are going to find out one day you weren't on the wrong side of history. All along you were moving along the grain of human history. All history is moving towards this moment. Where people who don't want God are going to be banished from Him forever in eternal destruction. You know, Merry Christmas. And those who are clinging even with a little modicum of faith are going to be marveling for the rest of their lives. And he says, if you keep hanging on, that's just a sign that God's got you. And see, for us, mostly it's not persecution. We don't, we don't live in areas where other people do. Other people in all parts of the world, they are really getting, getting a lot of black eyes, getting a lot of loss, they lose their family, they lose their livelihood because they believe in Jesus. That doesn't happen to us. But, you know, we have other enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, as theologians will tell us. And for some of you, there's kind of a hell of your own making. You know what it's like to be tormented inside, don't you? To be tormented with your own nightmarish preoccupation with yourself. Maybe there's resentment that you keep feeling over and over again. You've got your own little Netflix binging of somebody who did something wrong and you keep replaying it in your mind. You keep envisioning and you realize, wow, I've just spent a lot of time thinking about this person who's hurt me and how I can get them back. And you're acting in such a way as to to do almost everything you're doing against them, even though They don't have anything to do with your life normally, but they're controlling you. Or sometimes you're so eaten up with this fear, like, what's going to happen to me? What's happening to me right now? You can't be anything but aware of your body, what's going on in your head and your mind, your body and your circulation and your nerves. You're so overly preoccupied and it feels like a little mini hell. You're terrified about a conversation you had with somebody and what they think of you. Oh my gosh. I can't believe what I said. They're going to find out the truth about me. Maybe they're going to misunderstand me. And then you've suddenly blown it all out of proportion, but you don't know that. You think you're thinking of it exactly rightly. And it's hellish. It's awful to be stuck inside yourself. And if you find, if you find that in those moments you, you find yourself running in desperation, you find yourself moving out of this hell of yourself, towards the one who can liberate you from your self-incarceration, from the gloomy little dungeon that you've been stuck in inside your own mind, that's a sign. That's something to marvel at, that there's a God who can release you from yourself. You keep going back to Him. You keep moving out of yourself to others and to God. It's all a lot of what human life is. It's a marvel if you can you keep enduring, even in the midst of all these horrible things that happen. Hard marriages, hard jobs, hard suffering that's been entrusted to you. The apostle would say it's a marvel if you hang on. It's evidence that God 
is going to let you be one of the people that marvels with him and at him. The third thing you marvel at, it's not just growing faith and increasing love, not just that your endurance is evidence of you belonging to God. It's that punishment will be perfectly dispensed so you don't need to punish anyone. God is just. The apostle wants them to realize this. Listen, 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 listen. God is just, he says. The passage that Dave read from Ezekiel, the question of the people of God often when they're getting their clocks cleaned, as they say in the movies, or in colloquial conversation, when they're getting their clocks cleaned, when they're getting it handed to them, they start to wonder, is God just? Is He really protecting us? Why is all this stuff happening to us? If God really loves us, why are these things happening to us? God isn't just. He doesn't care about wickedness. He blesses the wicked. He causes the righteous to lose their jobs and get flat tires. And the apostle says, no, 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 God is just. He's going to give trouble back to those who trouble you. He's going to give relief to those of you who are troubled. And he says these, you know, this is the best part of the sermon. This is the best part of our religion. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. Now, This is exciting to talk about. Miroslav Volf is a theologian at Yale Divinity School. He's a Croatian who has lived in the Balkans, has been part of and has spoken to places where genocide has happened. And he says it's very easy in our day, I'm paraphrasing, it's very easy in our day to say, oh, I believe in a God of love. He would never judge anyone. He would never judge anyone. He's a God of love. And he says, you know, it's, it's convenient and easy for the liberal mindset and, a, and the nice comforts of your suburban home over coffee. You know, when you're looking at a Pottery Barn catalog and drinking your $8 a cup coffee from Starbucks, To say, oh, God is a God of love. He would never punish anyone. He says, but imagine this. Imagine that you're giving a lecture or a sermon to a group of people who have had another group, just because they're one ethnicity, has had another group come in and pillage, plunder, and then burn their town and then rape their children and their wives and then slit the throats of their husbands and their fathers. And you say, but you should not retaliate because God is a God of non-coercive love. He says, no, here's what happens. In every case, when you lose a God of judgment, when you lose a God who will set things right, who will perpetrate violence on those who have done violence and wickedness, if he will not end evil, you will assume that you must. And you will take violence up yourself. The only way to have a non-violent, non-retaliatory way of life is to believe that God himself will do the judging later. And he knows how to do it perfectly. Dave Hansen, who's a pastor friend of mine through books. I never met him, but I love him. If you're ever listening, Dave. He's not. Thanks for laughing. 
He said, there was a time in my life as a pastor when I became a universalist. I thought God would never send anybody to hell. It was way more convenient. This is what I would prefer to believe as well. Prefer to believe, but I cannot believe because I don't believe the Bible teaches it. And he says, here's what I noticed happening as I became a universalist for a short time. I started thinking, no, God will never judge anybody. Everybody's going to go to heaven. Everything's going to be fine in the end. He says, I started hating everyone. I started hating it when people were mean to me. I started hating people who, who were doing wrong things. I've just found this kind of awfulness coming out of me and he says you know what happens is the soon as you eliminate a god of judgment you become a judge it's just universal it's just what happens and so the apostle is always saying just like jesus said we turn the other cheek we leave vengeance to god we repay evil with good because that's what god does and vengeance is hid one day god is going to take care of everything that's how the Apostle Peter can say that, like Tim Mela just said in his prayer, that when Jesus had insults hurled at him, he didn't retaliate. But he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. See, Jesus knew that vindication was going to come, but it wasn't his place right then when people were mocking him to dot out any eyes or to call down any thunderbolts. Or to summon up a flood to sweep everybody away. Of course he could have done that. But he entrusted himself to God who judges justly. This really helps us. One, it helps these Thessalonians because they've got to know, hey look, we don't have to retaliate and God has not fallen asleep. He's going to take care of us. He's going to make everything right. It's going to be all fixed and it's going to seem wonderful. It helps us not to retaliate. Because we don't know how too well. If you've had children before, you know sometimes there's all kinds of little mini acts of justice that happen in your house. Right? One child takes another child's piece of cake, the other child then hits them with the two before. No, 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 I'm, ex- I'm exaggerating. They didn't take the cake. Yeah. But you know what happens is when you're trying to teach your children sometimes is you can't punish your brother or you can't punish your brother or you can't punish your sister because you don't know how to do it justly. What is the apt punishment for taking someone's cake or sitting on their side of the car or using their baseball glove? How do you know? We have to let God sort these things out because he's wise and he's just. And, we, and of course, we don't want him to punish us. He's merciful to us. We want to be merciful to each other. So we don't have to retaliate. That's why, you know, the apostle would apply this, apostle Peter would apply this to marriage. Our professor John Frame wrote an essay called Marriage as Unjust Suffering, which is a really hopeful look at marriage. And he looks at this passage in 1 Peter 2 about Jesus entrusting himself and not retaliating and saying, you know what, there's going to be marriages where you're not getting back from your spouse what you are putting into it. It seems awfully lopsided to you. And marriage and domestic life and all the nastiness of it. There's so many opportunities to pay each other back with quick whips, with cold-heartedness, with icing each other out, with harshness, abrasiveness. There's so many opportunities for retaliation. But if you believe that God has everything in his hands and that he has not judged you and you don't don't have to be the judge, then you can entrust yourself to him. You don't have to retaliate to your spouse. You don't have to retaliate when people do things wrong to you. God's going to take care of it. Now, 
He's trying to encourage the people of God who are suffering tremendously with this knowledge about God's judgment. But this is also something you need to know. When you hear that God's going to punish people with everlasting destruction and shut them out from the presence of his mighty power, you first need to realize that God is not like some uh, traffic cop doing what I just heard a guy tell me the other day. A guy told me the other day he was getting on the interstate, on the entrance ramp, revving up his speed to merge onto traffic on the highway that was going 55 miles an hour. So he's building up speed on the entrance ramp. Now, pause. Isn't this what you think you're supposed to do on an entrance ramp? He got a ticket on an entrance ramp because he was going more than 35 miles an hour. And he protested to the policeman. But I was trying to get my speed up. I thought that's what you were supposed to do. He said it's not actually 55 until you get onto the highway. Well, that's asinine, isn't it? And it certainly doesn't make him walk away thinking, man, this policeman loves me. He is really concerned about justice in the world. The only thing he could conclude was this man has been told that he must generate some revenue and he better find it out in the most sneaky way possible. And so, it's easy to imagine when you hear about judgment, you hear about destruction, you hear about God's vengeance, that God is just like a mischievous kid looking for some bug that he can squash. A caterpillar that he can sink his heels down into and squish and watch all the juice come out. But you see, what we read in Ezekiel is that God said, I take no no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I would rather that they turn and live. God said, I would rather that they would turn and that they would live. In 2 Peter, when Peter says, hey, now in the last days, which we've been in for 2,000 years, in the last days, there will be scoffers who say, where is this coming? That Jesus thing goes on as it has been forever and ever. And he says, listen, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. He's not not slow in keeping his promise. He's patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to be saved. So, when God talks about this eternal destruction that is going to happen, for those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, what he is talking about is people who their whole life have stiff-armed God. When he's held out his arms of mercy and said, Here, you want to live on the new earth? You want to live as you were supposed to? You want for free all your sins and everything wicked and horrible about yourself? Everything that you want to hide that I already know about? Abolished. You want me to see you as if you're sterlingly righteous, as if you were Jesus Christ himself? You want to know that when you die, you pass right through it? Like it's a shadow. You don't even taste death, but you enter into my presence where joy alone is permitted and sighing and fear has been abolished. Then just receive me. Frame your life according to me. Trust me. Fall into my arms. But for those who say, no, I want to be a free agent. No, I don't want to live in your presence. No, I don't want to listen to you ever. For those who say that, at some point God will say, fine. You want to live away from my presence? You got it. And they will be banished from his presence forever. And that's the deepest darkness. That's hell. That's, that's the worst kind of isolation, the worst kind of eternity spent. And the Bible takes this very seriously. But God wants everybody to take this gift of his 
to heart because he doesn't want to punish. Lastly, thus, you marvel that you are included in the best days of God, which lie ahead. After Paul's talked about this judgment that will come, he says all this is going to happen on the day when God is glorified among us and when we marvel at him. And he says, this includes you because you believed our testimony to you. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. It's really wonderful. The apostle, when he says you believed our testimony, he's not telling you something that he made up. You might think he did that, but he's emphatic over and over again. That's why he uses a word like testimony. He's bearing witness to something. He's telling you about something he knows to be true and he knows to be real. And he's saying only a a wise person is going to frame their life according to what's real. And what's real is that this Jesus who's been raised from the dead will include anyone who trusts him. He'll liberate them from themselves. He'll grow them in faith and in love and he'll sink his hooks of love in them and he will not let them go until they live as they were intended all for the rest of their lives. And now you have an opportunity to start to marvel, to be a person who notices God everywhere, who notices Him even when you're struggling, that hangs on by faith and it grows in love because you know that one day this marvel of Jesus with us is going to change us. But you've got to train your eyes to see this. It's a thing that can happen daily as you train the habit of faith, as C.S. Lewis said, as you bring before you the things that you believe. The scriptures, you memorize scripture, you pray, you read things that help you believe this day after day. You be together in small groups and in worship like this so that you can believe these things. And you train your eyes. You know, we notice all kinds of things. I was at a doctor recently and he said, one of your options is you can get your deviated septum corrected. And I said, but I did have my deviated septum corrected. And he said, well, they didn't do a very good job. And I was like, what do you mean? Well, he could tell. I don't know. what I didn't know that. But he just was trained. He could just look at my nose. That's, a, that's the thing in your nose here. It's crooked. He could tell. He had trained his eyes to see. Clyde Kilby, who was a professor at Wheaton, an English professor at Wheaton, was one of John Piper's most beloved professors. And Piper said, I heard him once give a speech about 10 resolutions for mental health. And I always loved this man. And I thought, he has eyes to see what, I, what makes me feel like a blind man. He'll talk about the tree that he saw on the way to work this morning. He had such eyes, it made me feel blind. And one of the things that he said he would do, he said, every single day, once a day, I will stop and I will look at a person or a tree or a flower or an animal and I will not ask what they are. I will simply be glad that they are. I will celebrate their ecstatic wonderful, terrifying, magical existence as something that God has made. It's training your eyes to start to see that God is up to things all the time. Learning to marvel now and seeing behind all your good experiences when you enjoy a good sirloin steak or a whole bunch of bacon or better, bacon wrapped around steak. As Ron Sonson would say, his first favorite food wrapped in his second favorite food. When you have times with friends where you're laughing and it's too short and you don't want it to end and you realize behind that, 
is a gift from the one that one day I will experience all the time. When you eat something good, when you feel some satisfaction in your work, when you enjoy a good nap, when you know the embrace of a spouse or a child or a friend, and you recognize behind these things are the very marvelous good gifts of the God that we'll one day marvel in in person. As you learn to praise others, as you learn to identify goodness in other people, Francis Schaeffer says, every time I notice something good in someone else, I diminish myself. You train yourself not to notice people's flaws, to notice what the good work of God is in them so that you can marvel at their growing faith and their growing love. You can marvel at their endurance and you can encourage them in the process. These are the matters for marveling that we meet up with day after day. I hope you'll take it to heart. I hope you'll learn, as I'm hoping to learn more and more, to marvel at the one that we'll one day stand before with all kinds of oohs and ahs, with our breath taken away, and say, oh, this is what we only caught a faint whiff of in all the pleasures of our lives. Now we see it face to face. These are matters for marveling. Amen.